Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 284. So last week at the end of the podcast, we talked about Python for engineers and maybe doing like an introductory stream slash video or something like that. Sort of like a webinar. Yeah, kind of like a webinar, except informal. Webinar seems very marketing term like. Yeah, very much is. Yeah, and this is some dudes getting on Twitch. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no marketing people were were used in the making of this stream. <laughs> it's a good way of putting it. Good, I guess so. Um, so we we talked about the end of the last week's podcast, and we had a lot of people in our Slack channel say yes, they want to do that. Um, we had a couple dates thrown around, and some. The majority of people seem to be okay with a Saturday stream. And so we're going to do this Saturday, which is July 10th, 2021, at 6 p.m. Central Time. For all those people listening in the future. Hey, <laughs> you'd you, be surprised how many people listen to our back catalog. Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, so yeah, this Saturday, July 10th, 2021, 6 p.m., um, it'd be at twitch.tv slash macrofab. You'll see that URL in Twitter and in our Slack channel. And so what this is, is going to be um, an introductory to Python and embedded systems, but not in the way that most of these are set up. Most uh, introductory to Python, like go into coding. We're not going to do intro this is not intro to coding you kind of have to know how a keyboard works for this <laughs> um so we're going to be setting up a python environment on a windows pc because um, that's just what i have right in front of me right now and that's going to be the easiest we're going to set up python script to talk to an embedded device and that embedded device is going to be an arduino because that's what I have in my drawer right back here. It's what probably most people listening to this podcast have. And it's the best SEO. That's, <laughs> that is the marketing person right there. Yeah, there it is. They creep in eventually. <laughs> they creep in eventually. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to write a Python script to talk to the embedded device over serial communication. This, so this is not a how to write Python C code stream. Like... You don't have to know Python, but you have to have some coding experience. I mean, it's just this is the thing. Code is just code. It's syntax. Changing languages is fairly easy. So if you know how if you know how to write Arduino code, you'll be able to do this fairly yeah, easy. Yeah, and, and actually that's what I've seen a lot in our Slack channel of people saying, like, hey, I know C, but I don't know Python, and this could be really useful. Yeah, it would be a very good introductory to it. Because we're going to set up a, a Python environment. We're going to be using a IDE programming environment called PyCharm, which is free. The non-commercial version is free. We are not going to use it in the full capability that it has, but we will get started and maybe I will learn something from someone will probably have some Python tips for me too. We're going to go through some of the modules, which are Python libraries. They're called modules. The modules that I use a lot, um, like the ones for, there's a new one called that was that ice cream one from last week or two weeks ago. Um, we'll go over that kind of stuff. If we have time, I don't know how long we're going to have this thing run for. I think it's going to be kind of like till we're done or just tired of talking. <laughs> um, Probably at least expect at least an hour. 
yeah, at least an hour. Um, it would be cool to like get the stuff working and then kind of do some GUI work on the on the computer side, on the PC side. And we'll be using Tekinter for the G, uh, GUI stuff because um, that's what I'm used to. And it's the great thing about that is I want to kind of like only use stuff that's portable in terms of it runs on any operating system. And so the idea is going to be getting a better device. Yeah, the bit device is Arduino. And then we're going to use the Skippy module that's in uh, Python to handle the communication. And so we're going to set up Skippy as well on the PC because you have to have the uh, the uh, NI Visa drivers to to make that work, which is natural instruments. And that, that's free as well. So all of this stuff is, is free slash open source kind of stuff. Um, I don't think NI Visa is open source, but it's free at least. There is a there is an open source version uh, for it, but I haven't tried it. It's like Pi Visa. Haven't played around with it yet. Maybe I'll get time to do it before the podcast, before this the stream, and we can use that. But um, yeah, I think it's going to be informative for for hardware engineers to kind of learn setting up a more advanced like testing system for their devices. Hundred um, percent. I'm really looking forward to this myself because I'm. 100% a student here. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to be learning a lot myself on this. Uh, so, I'm, yeah, I'm really, excuse me, I'm really uh, looking forward to it. Now, uh, I guess two, two things that uh, might be helpful here. Sounds like there's a handful of things um, th- that uh, we're going to need to download or going to need to install. Uh, maybe, maybe it'll be helpful if we could just have a list with URLs that we could get them beforehand uh, yeah. to kind of speed things up. And then uh, sure. perhaps... What might even be helpful, I don't know, um, but uh, like a small Arduino sketch that handles Skippy, that like you could prove things being ta- uh, communicated to the Arduino. Oh yeah, um, so on that, uh, will be when we write the Arduino side for it for Skippy, because we'll we'll just have a little script that we'll write ourselves. Oh, um, a sketch. I mean, a sketch. <laughs> and uh, you can actually just open up a COM port and you because it's because Skippy communicates over a COM port with with oh so you can just human readable characters yeah. so you can actually send it over a serial terminal to it to make sure it's working correctly. Okay, yeah, I was just uh, yeah something that makes the Arduino blink c- confirming that it received a code. Exactly, we're going to be totally doing that. That'd be like the first step is we're going to do that part and then we'll go jump into the Python part and replicate what we just did in the serial terminal into Python and yeah. Very cool. That's, that's going to be great. So once again, that's this Saturday, July 10th at 6 PM central, uh, log into twitch.tv slash macrofab and, uh, join us for that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I had a, a client provide us a testing script for one of their boards, um, just the other day. And they, they, they provided really great, uh, instructions on how to how to use their uh, Python script. They also provided really great instructions saying like this is the exact version or greater of of Python you need. These are you know your Python codes you need to run in order to install whatever modules were required for the test. And it, it's kind of cool because you plug into the the board and then um, you run this this Python Python test script and it brings up a GUI and the GUI has all these little sliders and values on it and you turn 
pots and switches on his board and you see the values change and that's the test you 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 just need to guarantee that if you turn a pot you see the slider move uh so it was a really well done test if you ask me in terms of um uh, making it easy for an operator because they don't have to know anything. They don't have to care about what the value is. They don't have to look at a scope and turn a trim pot for until a very spe specific waveform shows up. Uh, they just turn a pot and see a thing slide. If they turn the pot and don't see it slide, that's a failure, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and it was all done with this really simple GUI. Um, I really liked it. I think that is a, a, a shining example of a good test on it now the thing that sucks about it is the actual programming connector didn't connect to the board very well so you have to hold it at a weird angle so the <laughs> software side is beautiful but the hardware side is like ah like we're 99 percent of the way there so there's it's it's hard to it's hard to make both worlds work perfectly <laughs> yeah yeah well well this that would be the point of this is we'll try to make both worlds work perfectly with this you know, one and a half hour stream we're going to be doing this Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Uh, cool. Looking forward to it. So I've got an update um, to our plastic injection molding. Um, for those who uh, maybe haven't listened uh, of, to the past, I don't know, 30 episodes or so, <laughs> I, I, occasionally I've been giving an update on a, uh, on well, a small... Well, if you haven't, welcome back. Yeah, welcome. Uh, I've been giving updates uh, as I go through plastic injection, injection molding, a, uh, a switch that I've been designing. Actually, I've been designing the actuator, uh, which, which basically fits on top of a snap dome, a uh, metal snap dome that, that interfaces with some pads on a board, and I'm basically building my, a, a switch from scratch. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why it makes sense for us to do this. Um, it is cheaper at the end of the day, but it's also, uh, we have the ability to control everything and make it uh, as reliable as we want. And so um, I actually have the first round of samples of these uh, actuators that I designed, and I've been torture testing one of them. And the goal was to press this actuator a million times or take it to failure, whichever one comes first. Well, I've eventually, you know, after weeks of pressing this button with a with a test jig, I finally got to what I call a mega press. And uh, we're finally there. I've actually got one million presses on this switch, and it's still functioning. It's still working well. In fact, I, I really do think I, I could have taken it farther than a million presses. But um, I, I'm just, I'm at, a, I'm at a million. I'm happy with stopping there. I know it can go past that. Uh, so I have a handful of pictures because at the end of this test, I disassembled my test rig and I took a bunch of pictures of all the aspects and all of basically what has happened to the switch over a million After presses. a million presses. After a million presses. Uh, so I've got these pictures up for those who are watching on our Twitch stream and we'll put them up on um, on the blog, uh, macfab.com slash blog. You'll be able to find it when this podcast is live. So the uh, the first thing I looked at was the pole, the center stem of the actuator to see if anything had morphed or changed on that. And there's very small indentations on the uh, top from being beaten to death with a uh, linear actuator. It's actually pretty minor. So uh, the, the, the center stem, the part that the user's finger will press, 
I don't even think after a million presses you'd be able to tell. I mean, you may have like rounded over the edges a little bit. It might have that that, that used plastic sheen to it. Yeah, you may have smoothed it a little bit, uh, but I, I think I think we'll be fine. The main thing I took I, I really focused on was looking at the legs of the spring. So I've, I this is a circular spring on this actuator. Uh, and I really wanted to see if there was any stress fractures or if there was any, uh, like, you know, when you, you stretch plastic and it, and it, uh, you get that, you get that white, uh, it changes colors. You go past its plasticity. I don't, I'm an electrical engineer. I don't know the right words, but, uh, like you go past the point that it'll return, um, in its stress curve. I don't, I see none of that on this, uh, actuator. And, and from the images you can, uh, look at the, it basically looks like it did when I first originally got them. So, uh, luckily, there's no big stress uh, issues with it. I I just I don't see any wear on it. Uh, now, here's the here's the thing: the actual spring is moving sixteen thousandths of an inch, so it's not very much. And and sixteen thousandths of an inch is the amount that the center pole has to move up and down. But the legs of the spring are kind of rotating, so they're at any one, like, I don't know, cross-sectional area of the leg of the spring, it's not moving very much. So I, this is not surprising, but it's nice to actually test it and, be, and figure out, like, okay, yeah, we're, we're not stressing my actuator too much. Uh, can you scroll down a little bit, Parker, to the next page? So I took the actuator off the board and uh, took a look at both the snap dome with the uh, plastic over top of it. Basically, the way the these snap domes are are um, fixed to the board is they're placed on the pad, and then a plastic uh, film is placed, an adhesive, effectively. The adhesive is about I don't know three thousandths of an inch thick or so. So they're basically just stuck to the to the PCB with um, tape, packaging tape. Yeah, it's a little thicker and more <laughs> like I don't know spongy than. Uh, than packing tape, but it's pretty similar. You could probably do it with packing tape, and it would. I've, I've actually repaired um, all the Atari Twenty Six Hundred joysticks have snap domes that are applied this way. Yeah, and uh, the you did it with packing tape, and I've repaired because the 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 plastic had failed after what they're fifty years old now. Yeah, um, and yeah, you just put new, you just put packaging tape on it, and that seems to work. Who knows how long that's going to last, but whatever. it seems like a pretty simple fix right if it does fail yeah so so after a million presses luckily this adhesive film looks fairly good it doesn't it doesn't have any tears it doesn't uh have any uh like big issues on it it does have a little bit of rippling on it um and you can kind of see the direction that the the center pole as it was pressing down on the snap dome as it kind of tended across a million presses and that's because the center pole wasn't always pressing straight down onto the dome sometimes Mm -hmm. it angled a little bit so it kind of scooped the dome in a way um and that stretched the the adhesive film a little bit i guess and and kind of pushed it now the good thing is that's relatively imperceivable not relatively it basically imperceivable uh when this when this test was done i actually grabbed my little test jig that has four of these actuators on it three of the actuators have been pressed 10 or fewer times and one was pressed a million times 
and I took it around the shop and I handed it to people who had never even seen the jig before. And I told them, three of these have been pressed 10 times and one has been pressed a million times. Can you tell me which one was pressed a million times? And every person I gave it to got it wrong. Uh, which is which is pretty legit. <laughs> that's great. So, that's great. That's, that's great. Yeah. That's exactly what you want. And after yeah. I after I told them which one it was, they were like, "Ah, oh, yeah, I guess so." Um, but but in in a blind test, they were not able to tell if it was more or less tactile, springy, or spongy. Which mm-hmm. hey, perfect. I mean, all of this is exactly what uh, what I was looking for. So so in the next image we have down here, I've actually pulled the. Uh, dome off of the the PCB because this was the most scary part scary in quotes Uh, I wanted to see how much the dome dug into the pad uh, that it was on because oh yeah because when you're when you're pressing it down it's got to flatten out well it's yeah it has pivot points it's got these little it has it has eight points that actually make contact with the uh, with the pad and those points ever so slightly jiggle I, not jiggle, but they have motion when you press. They have to the go outwards when you press the button down. Right, right. So in this image we have here, you could see clearly the eight points that the uh, the dome was riding on effectively. And uh, something that's really important to note about this image, I took this this image with my microscope right after I pulled that uh, the snap dome and the adhesive off. So, I mean, I had it under the scope when I pulled it off and I just clicked, you know, take picture on my computer and you can see the points at which the, uh, the dome was riding. Uh, it dug through the Enig coating on top and, uh, it is, it hasn't gone all the way through the pad cause you can see silver underneath each one of the, uh, the pivot points here. So it ripped through the Enig and it's down into the undercoat, whatever that nickel or whatever it is on this particular board. So luckily it hasn't eaten through entirely a full uh, pad in a million presses. So the thing that's, that's interesting is, is if you scroll down here, I, took, I got out the Barlow lens for my uh, microscope and I took a really close picture of the, uh, of the pads and they're no longer silver. So in the amount of time it took for me to unscrew the lens on my scope and put the tw- 20X lens on my scope, uh, the the under material, whatever it is on these boards, I'm not entirely sure, but it oxidized pretty heavily. Like in these images, you can see that that material is is black now, uh, and actually, you can see gold dust around the uh, around those points. It uh, like, I mean, just a million presses have just pulverized the enig into powder around there. Um, and when I first saw this, I was like, "Oh, this is not good," because. Uh, I guarantee you that oxide layer, whatever's growing on there, is non-conductive, right? Uh, so I was getting a little bit concerned about that because if if not pressing it can lead to oxidation, could you get to a point where a press is just just doesn't register? But then I thought about it. This thing has a huge amount of surface area. Uh, any one of those eight pivot points needs to make contact, but there's more of the dome that can make contact as well. Also, when you press it, it it's going to dig out that oxide layer uh, mm-hmm. by itself. It's going to self-clean in a I was about to, actually about to use that term, self-clean. Yeah, like, like, like uh, arcade buttons, you know, how they, they're labeled as self-cleaning. Oh, well, that's the old school with the leaf switches. Because the, right. 
when the leaf switch would contact, it would contact and then slide against the contact, right? Clean, effectively cleaning the contact off. Right, right. It sort of in the same it, mechanically, you're digging the oxide layer away. Also, I, I thought about it in my testing. Basically, what I was doing is I was um, I was turning on my test rig at eight or so in the morning and letting it run for eight hours and then it would rest overnight or it would rest over a weekend every time i came back and started the test rig up it immediately was registering clicks so even with multiple days in between testing if it grew an oxide layer that never was an issue up to a million presses so i don't care if it digs through the enig a little bit and i don't care if it grows an oxide layer i never once had an issue with it uh, it is kind of interesting though, because it only takes a few seconds for that for that uh, nickel to go from a nice silver to full on black. It's not even like gray, like uh, you see aluminum do when it oxides. This it almost looks like um, black pad. Have you ever seen black pad before? Mm-mm. It uh, oh on a PCB on a PCB. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's it, like it's it's a very interesting. Uh, uh, phenomenon where like the pad will literally turn black. Only I've only seen that on uh, organic. What's that? What's that other service? PP or whatever. OSP, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had that once when I was at uh, Macrofab, and and it sucks because that oxide layer resists soldering and it doesn't clean very well. At no, all. it resists everything. Well, yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> it's it, it's 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 if you see it, it's kind of like a start over. Yeah, almost, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, OSP. OSP, that's what it is. I've only seen that on OSP boards. So uh, this was the first actuator. I have one point of data now. Uh, So I'm going to continue this test and do at least three or four more of them. I'd love to get to five. If I can get five actuators that consistently go to a million presses, then uh, I think that's enough for me to say I'm, I'm okay with this. Frankly, we only need them to go to a, like a hundred thousand, so a, a million is ridiculous. I would say the only thing you need to improve with your fixture is to have have it as feedback, have a feedback loop. Because right now you're running open loop, mm-hmm. and I would just, if I was you, I would just put an opto coupler or an uh, opto coupler, an uplo, uh, opto uh, line beam, basically. Sensor. Right, so you know that like it should be pressed. And then you ask the question, did it get pressed? Yeah. Yeah. That's how I originally had it set up. I I would prefer it to be that way. Um, Well, you're using that linear actuator, which is basically just a DC motor running a a flywheel. uh Uh-huh. Right. Um, And so if you use that same setup, you just have to know when it should be in the forward position and when it's in the back position. Mm. Um, So you can either do, or you can use a Hall effect sensor. That, That would be an easy way, too. Right, right. Just know that you expect a button press, and yeah. and then ask, did it happen? Right. Because what you could do is just rot when you're rotating, have a Hall effect sensor just measuring rotation, and you go, okay, we rotated three hundred times, did I get three hundred presses? Hmm. I actually did have a handful of, I call them quote failures. They're not failures in my mind. They're more the test rig just. Uh, the, the linear actuator in some situations could push the button away from it such that it wasn't actually clicking the button. So oh, the linear okay. actuator, like it would stop in that situation. Um, so yeah, the, the, this one was hobbled together a little bit 
more than I wish, but uh, it worked, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, and at the same time, I actually have a new batch of actuators that are due to arrive any day now. Uh, so I'm going to try to switch over to those actuators for continuing the test just because they're slightly different material. Um, and they they don't have the void. They do not have the void. Well, I don't know yet. I haven't seen them. They should not have the void. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll post up some pictures as soon as I get those. Okay. So I have an update too. But this was with Pinball. The Pinotaur. Um, production is going well. It's a little bit slow right now, but it's going well. Um, boards are slated to be completed soon. So this is like the first 275 of them. So we built four as like a first article and that all worked fine. Um, so this is like the first ramp legit up, run. I guess. Yeah, legit run. So it's almost done. Um, we got to build a thousand now, though. Hmm. <laughs> I'm sure they uh, love you. Um, so... What I want to talk about is kind of like the supply chain hurdles I've, I'm going through right now of doing the go, do, 250 was okay. We got 250 through, but now it's a thousand. Um, that's when it's like, okay, now you start buying, you can't just buy offcuts from reels and stuff. You, you're buying full on trays and reels and of everything now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the main one is the microcontroller. And. <laughs> Um, and so I'm not going to say what the part number is because that's irrelevant in this situation, but it's finding alternates and part numbers that will work for you and stuff that you can think about when you're actually picking a microcontroller and how to be better at picking one, I guess, because we actually lucked into, I I wouldn't say lucked into, we did pick this microcontroller, because we knew it was a really popular one, but also there was a lot of stock. It's an Atmel SAMD chip. Um, but there's also um, um, lots of variants of this microcontroller, and so we were able to leverage the variants as well. Um, so the big thing to look at in, in these micro, because right now, like, all microcontrollers are, like, wiped out on the market. Like, everything's, like, zeroed out. Um and it's basically start looking at like the on the part numbers. Start looking at like, can you get away with less RAM? Can you get away with less ROM? Um, we were able to get away with like half the ROM that we needed. So we were able to basically cut that out. And we were able to go to a completely different, almost different chipset, just had half the half the uh, the RAMs, uh, no, half the ROM size. And that was like, it was like untouched inventory right the well, going the other direction can also be helpful as well like if you, oh yeah it's going more if you just need more and uh they don't have the lower and you're willing to pay a higher price i mean everyone's willing to pay a higher price right, yeah, right now. now everyone's willing to <laughs> yeah that's that's super helpful but for this thousand unit run those were starting to dry up and so we i actually just switched to a different temperature range uh, I paid three cents more per unit, and I just got the the wider temperature range. And basically, what that all that is, I found out at least for these chips, is it's just a different coating on the leads, of the uh, the J leagues on like the QFN hmm. or QFP, I should say. Really? Well, I wonder yeah, what a, like what what purpose does that serve? But the internals, the, the die is the same. Everything else is the same. It's just the the tin coating is slightly 
different myth, different alloy, alloy, and it can resist temperature, operating temperature higher. Hmm. So okay. instead of like going up to eighty C, it goes up to like one twenty five C. Right. And uh, I mean, I paid three extra cents, I think, per unit. So yeah, that's a no brainer. Yeah, it was no brainer because I could just buy a thousand right off the shelf. And I'm like, right. done. Yeah, easy. Um, also, another thing is look at different packages. Sometimes you can get away with doing like a dual package QFP, QFN. We're doing, we want to do QFPs because we want everything to be visually inspected with optical. We don't want to have to do x ray stuff uh, in production. So we wanted, we want all the leads to come out. Um, but some people don't mind. Uh, Full optical or anything like that, so they want uh, so they can use QFNs. Um, but even the packaging matters. So th- what? So this is the difference between packages and packaging. So packages are like the physical f- part itself, and it's land pattern that goes on the board. Where that's where you get QFPs and QFNs and BGAs and SOS, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but the packaging is how those parts are stored. Are they on real? Are they on a uh, tray? Are they bulk? Um, that'd be really bad to buy integrated circuits in bulk because it's just thrown into a bag. Are they in tubes? Or in their tubes? That's right, tubes. Um, and so a lot of times manufacturers will have a, a uh, suffix on their part number that is the, the packaging of how it's like, uh, I think like, uh, what is it? Um, FTDI uses TR for tape and reel, which is obvious. And then um, TI, if you ever scroll to the very end of their data sheets, they have like four pages of different part numbers that have all different suffixes. And it's all the different packages and packaging options for their parts. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you won't find all those... Um, at your normal distributors like Mouser or Digikey, sometimes you have to go to the distributor itself or the manufacturer itself, and they will carry all those, or they can, or they have them in stock for you. Like I bought my chips directly from Microchip because it came in a because um, uh, Mouser and Digikey only really carried these parts on tape and reel, and they were all out. Well, Microchip had like you know a thousand of them in tray. And I'm like, yeah, tray is fine. I don't care. You know, also uh, above and beyond that, it goes even one layer deep, uh, deeper than that. Sometimes there's different reels. Like uh, there's certain resistors we carry that come on a seven millimeter and some that come on a 13, even though they're identical resistors, there's a different suffix for seven versus 13. Are you talking about the width? No, it's a... uh, uh, Or diameter. Hub size, basically, diameter. Oh, the core size? Yeah. That's weird. Yeah, I've never it's seen, super, I've seen. It's super weird. I've seen the whole diameter, like a seven inch versus a like was it a twelve inch uh, reel yeah. or bigger. Yeah. But I've never seen like a core size difference. Yep. Yep. And uh, it uh, it's the exact same resistor and it's just different quantity, uh, and and different cost actually based off of that. Hmm. So, it's rare that I've only no I've only seen one manufacturer do that, but uh, it you know you can. It happens. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, it happens for sure. Um, so what I can tell everyone listening that's like sweating bullets at their supply chain right now, um, talk to your CM and be like, 
and, and so a lot of CMs will just go towards like you gave them this part number and they will try to get that part number and they can't get it. So that's it. But work with your CM and be like, hey, uh, this part number's got different packaging options and stuff. What about all these? Um, the better CMs will will know that as well, but not all CMs do. The, you know, also if if you have some foresight uh, on things, especially on like weird parts, don't be afraid to put um, different packages on your layout, and you could populate based off of what's available. Mm-hmm. Or you could even go if you can do dual footprints that's preferable but sometimes you can't and it might be worth having two different skews of your in- or internal skews that or i guess they wouldn't even be revisions because i guess technically they are revisions um but they're parallel yeah split one revision. has one footprint one has the other footprint yeah uh that is an option as well too i've seen that happen in an iso 9001 situation which doesn't allow for parallel revisions. So it was like you had to roll the revision to make the, the whatever version you had. And then if you wanted to switch to the other, you had to roll to oh. the next to switch to it. But then if you if it, you had to go back to the other one, you had to roll it again. <laughs> it's awful. That's rough. Yeah, it's no fun. Yeah, I mean, I it, it's, would... it's clean, I guess you could say, but it's annoying. Yeah, that's annoying. Um I got it. How you can do it? You have a PCB board as a part number, and then you have an alternate part number PCB that's just that slightly different bomb and slightly different Gerber files. That way, that would work in ISO. Yeah, as like a configurable thing. Yeah, because well, because because part alternates are allowed in ISO documentation. So you just have you'd have to comp- your entire PCB assembly package would have to be duplicated as an alternative so it would have to have a different part number which mm. in this case it should because it has a different package for a part on it right yeah that would yeah that is that would be the probably better way to do that than to keep incrementing the revision every single time you had to switch to a different thing because of supply chain issues well this was this was done not thinking that it would ever switch back and then it did it switched back yeah <laughs> it switched back every six months yeah it's like oh no yeah very interesting stuff going on the supply chain stuff it's definitely like 18 mega 328 p's are like like non-existent right now oh the entire um st micro catalog is non-existent right now yeah i wonder who's buying all that stuff i wonder if it's people buying it for future like they're building up stock for next year panic buys yeah for sure. Yeah, I wonder how much of it is. It's like that whole gasoline thing in southeast uh, uh, United States where, like, that pipeline went down. And so a bunch of people panicked. Like, there wasn't really going to be a sh- shortage of gasoline. But then a bunch of people panicked, bought gasoline, and then it caused a shortage. Right. They made it happen. <laughs> yeah, they made it happen. Self-fulfilling prophecies, right? Honestly, that's kind of like traffic jams, right? If everyone just slowed down... There wouldn't necessarily be a traffic jam, but nobody just slows down. Everyone just races up to the very front where the clog is, and they make the clog. Yep. Yeah. Fun. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) So I ran into something this week that made me smile. Uh, 
I, I say I have finally reached real engineering. Or at least I finally It's been a decade since you graduated. Well, that's just the thing. I finally feel like I've I've run into a situation where I was like, oh, this is what I thought engineering would be like every day. Uh in, Oh, one of those. In terms of I would okay. like if if you went back and asked me in college, be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's like a normal day. It's a <laughs> This is sort of the first time, maybe not the first time, but it like it kind of resonates with me. So I'm designing this circuit right now uh, that that solves an issue that uh, has been around for a long time, or I'm in le- at least attempting to solve an issue that's been around. Uh, in this particular circuit, uh, y- you input a pulse, and that pulse gets morphed somehow, and uh, okay. and this circuit has has the the pulse as, as an input but then it has feedback that feeds a VCA and and depending on how that feedback is applied and the amplitude and the polarity of that feedback you can change the shape of how it morphs things so you can morph things linearly exponentially or logarithmically and anywhere in between uh so it's it kind of allows for a lot of variations there Here's the thing that 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 sucks about this circuit. It's well, okay. So let's put it this way: it's really easy to accomplish what I just said. But what ha- what ends up happening is, in time, none of these things um, fit within the same time frame. So let's say you hit this circuit with a pulse, and you have the feedback set such that it it responds linearly. It'll start and end at time zero and time t. Uh, where T is your end point. But then if you change the feedback such that it responds exponentially, that end point is no longer T. It's something else. And then Mm -hmm. if it's logarithmic, it is another T. So the feedback adjusts time. And that's just kind of how it's always been in synthesis. Well, I've kind of set out to, to see, like, could I make a compensation circuit that adjusts time such that they all start and end at the same point. So the only thing that's modifying is the shape. Um, oh, man, we're getting the hacking time time. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's totally exactly what it is. Uh, and so over, I, had this, I had a long weekend, and I didn't have a lot to do. Actually, what's funny is my AC is, is busted right now, which we're getting fixed. I shouldn't say fixed. We're getting a full brand-new AC for our house, which is an ordeal. Uh, and so my house has been like uber hot for a while and i haven't wanted to do anything but like sit down and play video games or just not move very much because it's gross and uh but like i got the itch and i pulled out a notebook and i started writing out the equations for this like i actually went to like circuit analysis on this thing which this is what i thought i would be doing when i was back in college and after writing out this equation i i come to the conclusion that i have a function that goes into this circuit, but this circuit integrates the function itself. So effectively what, what happens is I have on, I have this function on both sides of the equal sign and it's inside of a feedback equation. That's an integration. And once you start getting dirty with the math, it ends up being a differential equation. And I'm like, Oh my God, like I haven't seen a diffy Q since Diffy Q class, basically. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, like, okay, here's the thing. If we wanted to, 
Barker or I or, or any engineer out there, like we could, we could make a differential equation happen in our circuits, but like 99% of engineering is avoiding these kinds of things, like designing a circuit. So you don't have to do this crap. Right, right. Like you're laughing, but kind like, of true, kind of true. Depends on what you're doing, but yes. Yeah. So, so this circuit is not. Well, your whole goal is to make the the your whole goal when you at least well I my stuff because it's all digital stuff like that. You you're trying to make stuff as linear as possible. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're trying to you're trying to get rid of all nasty stuff. And it's funny too, because this entire circuit legitimately has one capacitor in it. Like one capacitor screws everything up, uh, and just makes it, makes it nasty. So, uh, so yeah, it ends up, it ends up being a, a, a differential equation, but not like a really clean one. Um, because it has, you know, some power functions and things like that in it. And, uh, and I started going down the route where, um, of like putting all of my controls into the, my equation. So I have, a, I have, um, inside my equation, I have a potentiometer for time, uh, that controls like the rate of things. I have another potentiometer that controls the shape of things and, and all this other stuff. And effectively I was trying to, characterize my entire circuit such that I could back solve for a compensation circuit uh, or a compensation curve, an equation that keeps time fixed uh, effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, my goal was if I could put in time T and then make all of the uh, variables stack together such that I get a curve that could be you built. You get a minus T at the end. Yeah, uh, effectively. Yeah, like they all, they mm -hmm. all equate at the end. And I started playing around with this. I even went on to Wolfram Alpha and had it do all my Diffy Q for me uh, and stuff. And then at the end of the day, I was like, man, this is, this is rough. And I was getting some stuff that worked, like legit. Like it, it was sort of doing what I wanted. Then I just, I, I, I stopped and I was like, you know what? This could just be done with Excel of just like doing trial and error in Excel until the curve popped out. And I did that and what was like hours of work kind of grinding out a differential equation ended up being like 30, 40 minutes of like just trying things in Excel until like iterative process in my head. You did the machine learning tactic. Effectively, effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not saying I have it solved. Like I don't have the circuit built or anything like that. I just have, I have a curve back calculated in Excel. And, and it kind of got me laughing because it's like, what I thought I was doing in college, which actually, I mean, we had to do that in college. I mean, you, you took mm -hmm. Diffie Q, right? You had to sit there and linear, Suffer. first order, homogenous, non blah, blah, blah. You remember all those words that you had to go through. I think through. I just had a stroke. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's not fun. <laughs> Diffie Q, like, I don't know. It, it, a certain type of person really likes that stuff. But, yeah. um, yeah, but, but like, <laughs> I thought I was going to be doing that a lot. Ten years later, I, I finally run into one. And, and I run into this situation trying to solve an issue that probably hasn't been solved because no one wanted to do this, right, uh, in, in the past. And I guess I'm, I'm speaking to all those college students who are out there. It's like, my, my, my um, suggestion to you is do well in your classes. Learn all that stuff because it's really great to know it. In fact, what was, what was funny was like, 
in in deriving these equations, I was able to derive the equations, and I laughed about it because I, I I could look at it and be like, I know what this is because I've done this before. That doesn't necessarily mean I had to grind out the actual solution. And in reality, even if I found what like the true honest to god equation was, there's probably not an analog circuit that actually does that that curve, right? Mm-hmm. Or does it? well or does it perfectly yeah no right so like even if i found like then that's when you slap a c6000 dsp on there and implement that equation in it or 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 slap a microprocessor with an a to d on it and just have the a to d loop itself and find all the correct values and then you (laughs) back calculate a curve (laughs) right like uh actually one so it's funny because one of the reasons why i'm even designing this or, or looking into it it's not a design yet but just I'm kind of exploring right now. One of the reasons is is back to what Parker we, we were just talking about is is parts shortages. Microcontrollers are hard to find right now, so we're looking at hey, can we make analog circuits that don't require microcontrollers right now? Well, sure. Now you got to start making some some crappy circuits. Yeah, that. So that was the my first. Um, so I went to school in my my uh, when I went to school my. Uh, expertise i guess because you get to pick like what like you want to do power or or stuff like that i did embed systems Mm -hmm. like there's some electrical engineers that do math at least at ut they do math as their expertise um so i did embed systems so i was doing i my labs were more focused on you know writing c code figuring out digital circuit uh logic that kind of stuff so that was what i went to school for my first project that, uh, or first product I had to design, and this was for, this is back pre Macrofab with, still with Chris Church, uh, um, who's co founder of Macrofab. He was, he founded a company called Dynamic Perception. Anyways, he said he wanted to design a, uh, motor controller joystick controller device thing without a microcontroller because he didn't want to program it. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, uh, I went to school to do that stuff, so I had to learn like op amps for my first project. <laughs> like I, like I, t- we touched. I touched op app. Like when I was in school, I touched op amps on like what they are. Yeah, because you have to, have to. Didn't do anything with them though. Like after that one class, didn't even do anything with them. So I'm like, okay, I have to figure out how to make these like how to make this thing work. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was okay. fun. It was a good learning experience. I learned how to feedback loops like actual phys- like actually doing it calculating out um basically i built a i think i told you before it was a triangle wave, up, of wave core right yeah yeah and then it was it's probably not the best way to do it but yeah it was a triangle wave and then you change the offset of the triangle wave to go into a comparator that drove a h bridge yeah basically a pwm uh generator that dumps into an h bridge if i remember yeah. right uh, you showed me the yeah. schematic one time yeah, it's not elegant, but it worked. <laughs> so, and it didn't use that many parts. I think I only used. I think you used uh, a quad. It was only four package, op right? amps. Yeah, yeah. So per channel, and one of those was as a buffer because it came. You had a pot input, so you needed a high input impedance. Yep, yep. Otherwise, it would. It'd I never figured out why I needed it. I just knew I needed it because if I didn't have it, it killed the whole circuit. <laughs> It wasn't until later until I talked to Steven. We actually talked about this circuit uh, at, at, at to some beers or something. Yeah. And uh, you explained why I needed high impedance input for there. Yeah. So. 
You know, and so the thing is, maybe maybe Parker and my experiences are different. Maybe we're normal uh, in terms of engineering. I'm not sure. So I kind of want to uh, cap off this uh, episode with a question to everyone. Uh, it's what is the most computational intensive work you've had to do in your job? And I'd kind of love to see what people have to say about that. And uh, maybe that'll make our, uh, our listeners who are currently in, uh, in college uh, excited because what they're learning is practical, or maybe it'll just make them really depressed because what they're learning is not what you're going to do. <laughs> it depends on the field. It, it does. It does. Yeah. Like if I went into the DSP side, because that, that was actually also part of it, is I was, it was embedded in DSP. DSP has, which is this digital signal processing, has tons of math in it, mm-hmm. and implementing that math into C code and 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 your circuits. So if you go that route and embedded, that is tons of math. I ended up just not following that way in commercial, and just ended up not you, you know. If you asked me to do it again, I probably couldn't do it. I I'd have to study up on it. It's been forever since I've done any DSP work. Yeah. Which is a shame. I really like doing it in school. It's fun. So. Yep. So, uh, yeah, log into our Slack channel and uh, it, let us know what's the most computational intensive work you've had to do. And uh, was it just simple addition or were you doing, like, triple integrals and all kinds of craziness and stuff? So, So mine... Is I don't know because I was solving. I I made a model and then sent it off to a solver. <laughs> so I don't know what the solver did, <laughs> <laughs> but I know it was really complex because it was a um, mixed integral nonlinear uh, problem, hmm. and it's really hard to find a solver that does those well too, because it's it's basically an, it's a uh, uh, theoretically infinite solve. You basically have to solve to a certain amount of iterations and go, okay, which is the best outcome? Sometimes um, numerical analysis is the way to go. But like, you don't actually solve it. You just find values that are close to it. And you say like, this is in the real world, there is an actual solution. So therefore I'm getting closer to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the problem with, those, those problems is sometimes there isn't a exact solution. That's the trick. So. Yeah, that, that's one of the things I really like about um, slow-moving analog signals like I deal with. Uh, if you see something up, approaching a value, there's a very, very low likelihood that it's going to explode to something you don't expect as it gets close to that value. Like, it's not going to just jump to infinity or negative infinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, you can start, sort of start to guess where it's going. So yeah, the Slack channel is macfab.com slash Slack. Let us know. I like that question a lot. I kind of want to know. I kind of want to write my own solver now. <laughs> I'll never get to it. Yeah, no. You got more, more. You got a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or crazy formula that you had to solve at the job, maybe on the whiteboard in front of your boss, I don't know. Let us know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. 
And the Slack channel is macfab.com slash Slack.